Hey, it's Anna Maria Tremonti, and I'm excited to tell you about my new podcast. It's called More, and I'll be talking to people you may think you already know until you hear them here. We've got a little more time to explore and to probe and even to play a little. So get ready for the likes of David Suzuki, Catherine O'Hara, Margaret Atwood, and many others. You can find more with Anna Maria Tremonti wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to White Coat Black Art, the show about medicine from all sides of the gurney. A big part of that mission is hearing from people who don't often get to tell their own stories. People like Christopher. What did the What did your room look like? Well, it's, it's a big dormitory where all the patients are. Here he is talking to White Coat producer Jeff Goods. How many people were in the dormitory? Gosh, it's a lot. Twenty or. What's it like sleeping in a room with twenty other people? I don't know. Sometimes they fight. That's not a really peaceful sleeping environment. Not really. Christopher is 81 and lives in Brantford, Ontario, about an hour's drive southwest of Toronto. We're not using his last name to protect his privacy. He's one of 315,000 Canadians, 15 years of age and older, who identify as having a developmental disability. For 13 years, from 1953 to 1966, Christopher lived at the Huronia Regional Centre in Orillia. It was an institution run by the Ontario government for people with developmental and intellectual disabilities. Back then, it was the kind of place where adults and children like Christopher were often taken for treatment and to live out the rest of their lives. There were places like this all across Canada. When the doors first opened in 1876, it was called the Orillia Asylum for Idiots. A name that was about as backward thinking back then as its philosophical approach to treatment. From the day the doors opened until the province shuttered them in 2009, tens of thousands of patients were housed there. For the most part, places like Huronia may be gone, but their cruel and inhumane legacy remains. Not just in the memories of the patients who live there, but in the ways people like me continue to treat adults with developmental disabilities. White Coat Black Art producer Jeff Goods has spent the past few months digging into this and more. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Brian. So before we get going, why are we doing this story now? Okay, there are a couple reasons. There's a news hook. This week, Emerald Hall in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. It's an inpatient facility for people with intellectual disabilities and mental illness. It announced they're laying off staff and moving to reintegrate the patients into the community. And as well, back in September, the Valley View Center in Moose Jaw closed. And this was a big deal. This was a large institution for people with intellectual disabilities. There were up to 1,500 people living there at one time. There is also a very personal reason for your interest in this story. Yes, yes, there is. There's a definite backstory here. Uh, a while back, a book landed on my desk, and the book's called Broken, Institutions, Families, and the Construction of Intellectual Disability. It's by Madeline Berghart. She teaches disability studies at the University of Western Ontario and York. The book tells a story of Ontario's institutions and how they were such a big part of a time when people with differences were shunted out of society, and medicine played a big part in, in that. And I told my son Ben about this story. 
And he was very interested. He has autism spectrum disorder and is very much an advocate for people with disabilities. He empathizes with them. He does. So he said to me, you have to do this story. It's part of the history of healthcare in our society. And he, he kept reminding me over and over, and it took a few months. But finally, he really helped me see the importance of this. So I contacted Madeline Berghardt, and we drove up to see what's left of the Huronia Institute in Aurelia. You know, I don't know. It's hard to tell with the big windows. Yeah. Gosh, it's just totally a wreck, isn't it? Hasn't been cared for. Just creepy. Well, it's so big. It's so big. Like, look at all these buildings. How many people were here? Well, thousands at its peak. You know, people were really, really jammed in. There are pictures in the archives that show some of the bedrooms. It was just beds, you know, right beside each other all the way through these huge rooms. There was no privacy. At its peak, there were over 400 acres. They had a farm. They had orchards, there was even a cemetery, and at its center is this big red Victorian building. Looks very stately. It doesn't look like a jail, but people who were sent there, they couldn't leave. And often they were there for decades. There's a fence around this place. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's a beautiful piece of land, but people couldn't leave, you know. So it doesn't matter how nice a place is if you don't have the choice to leave it. What do you think life was like for patients who, who lived here? Well, the ones I spoke with, some of them shared some really hard stories about things that happened to them while they were here, some real mistreatment, abuse, punishments for things that really were not, uh, you know, just ordinary behavior. A lot of them spoke of just the overall atmosphere of regimentation, lack of choice, lack of privacy, and in lots of cases, violence, so that even if someone wasn't directly being abused, survivors spoke about this atmosphere of of violence where you had to be really careful. They were always on edge, afraid that they would be punished for something if they acted in a certain way or if they spoke back to someone who was working or if they got in an argument with one of their peers. They were always afraid that they were going to be punished. And they all spoke about that, all of the survivors that I spoke with. Every single survivor I spoke with said, I wasn't happy there, I didn't like it there, and I'm much happier where I am now. So what sort of diagnoses would, would people get when, before or after they came here? Well, people who came to Huronia and other institutions for the feeble-minded, in quotation marks, because that's what they were called, would have been given some diagnosis of, quite literally, feeble-mindedness in the earliest days. And that was a bit of a catch-all phrase for any kind of intellectual disability, The thinking, you know, in the middle of the 1800s was much more that people labeled with an intellectual disability, people who were called feeble-minded at the time, could be rehabilitated to, to function in society. But I think by the time we even get to when Huronia was established in, you know, in 1876 and onwards, sort of the turn of that into the 20th century, a lot of those principles had been forgotten. And it just became much more of a a warehousing, frankly, like a, an incarcerative model where there was just this felt need to put people somewhere. It was much more about just let's get them all in one place together. And a lot of those rehabilitative 
uh, ideas had really fallen by the wayside. And a lot of that just basically had to do with numbers and the impossibility of doing anything like that when you have an institution this size. When you have thousands of people living together, how therapeutic can you can that actually be, right? Purchase Jeff, take us back to the origins of the place. Okay, so as you mentioned, Brian, it was called the Aurelia Asylum for Idiots, then the Ontario Hospital School, before being changed to the Huronia Regional Centre. And patients were sent there from all over central Ontario, including Toronto. It was the largest of three centres in Ontario. Two others were in Smiths Falls and in Chatham. They're all closed. And after the closing, there were class action lawsuits on behalf of former patients who alleged mistreatment and abuse. And in 2013, Kathleen Wynne formally apologized on behalf of the government and paid a $35 million settlement to surviving victims. And you met one of the survivors, Christopher. I, I did. I met Christopher. He's 81 years old, has a developmental disability. He lives independently. He's done so for decades in a one-bedroom apartment in Brantford. It's quite packed, full of his things. You know, on the walls, there are photos of Chris when he was younger, a smiling baby, uh, working at a local restaurant, winning a medal at the uh, Special Olympic swim team. And a home care worker visits him once a week. And other than that, as I said, he's on his own. And he lived at an institution for 25 years of his life. Wow. And of those from 1953 to 1966, he was in Huronia Center in Aurelia. And that was, Brian, that was over 50 years ago. Hmm. But Chris has an excellent memory. And one sunny morning, I sat down with him and he started sharing the stories of the violence and abuse that was part of his life in Huronia. And, and just a warning before we hear Christopher tell his story, he talks about graphic violence and sexual abuse. They used to use straps in those years in the 50s. I didn't like that. So straps would be uh, a way to, to punish you? Yeah. Yes, they are. How would they use them? Like that. Smack your hands? Yeah. Did you ever get the strap? Yeah, I had that. I was being bad. Do you remember what you did? Well, I did something wrong. Well, you were just a kid. Um, I was. I mean, we've all, we, I remember when I was a teenager, I, I did a lot of things wrong. Did you? I did. Yeah, I, I believe you. <laughs> so what did you, what did you, when you were at Aurelia and, you know, sounds like there were fights and there were straps and punishments and... They put patients on a block of wood to shine the floor too. To rub the floor. I don't. It's the rubber. It's a, and I shine, it's a block of wood to shine the floor. I'm putting them in nightgowns to shine the floor. So, you, you did this ever happen to you? Well, it happened to me. I was in the nightgown back in 1961. So, they would put you in a nightgown? Yeah. We were shining the floor. It's a block of wood. You would shine the floor with a block of wood? Yeah, a block of wood. They call it a rubber. It seems odd. I wonder why they put you in nightgowns. You know, for punishment. I know, but why punishment? Like I don't know. Seems odd. Yes. Yes. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. We're hearing the story of Christopher, who's 81 now but lived at the Huronia Regional Center. 
Uh, he was born with developmental disabilities, and he's talking about his uh, experience at Huronia. He's now about to talk about a very disturbing episode of sexual abuse. Please be advised. So, so I mean, when you look back at Aurelia, you've got your, you know, you, you were all sleeping in a big room. Yeah, uh, and that's uh, a big dormitory. Yeah, and you were, it sounded like they were, you know, they were punishments, right? They were kept in. Yes. The men's staff just talked dirty, talked filthy. The I staff? Didn't like that. The staffs, the men's staff. The women don't like that. And they used to they make patients do this. So they used to make patients touch themselves? Yes. In their, like, penis area? Yes. They had no business doing that. No, they shouldn't have no business. He talks dirty. Yeah. And what was his job? Staff. Mm. He's one of the mean ones. He was being dirty to the patients, to the workers. Made them shove their rear ends over. It's a good thing the nurse didn't walk in and saw that. The nurse would be upset. I wonder what he would do with their rear ends. That's Joe Wiener up there wrecked him. I know what it is. And I didn't like it either myself. I was really upset. It's a good thing the nurse didn't walk and saw that. The nurse would be upset. Well, and how does that make you feel? I mean, you're just a you're, you're a young guy, and here's this guy telling you to do something you don't want to do, and it. No, I didn't want to do it. I I said I told them no. Chris, that's a lot to carry around. I know. I didn't like it. It's a good thing the nurse didn't walk in and saw that. So, Aurelia, do you think it was a good thing that it closed? Yeah, it's good. It's good. Was it a good idea to have all those people together in one place? Not really. Not really. I'd say not really. No. Could you imagine going back to that place if it still existed? I know it's closed. No, I'm not going back there. It'd be awful. It reminds me of uh, the stories I've heard of people who've talked about the residential school experience. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of respect for Christopher for being able to tell the story. In such a matter-of-fact way. Um, were any of the people that he mentioned, you know, we, we, we haven't mentioned their names, were any of them brought to justice? No. Water under the bridge? Mm-hmm. I believe the vast majority of them are dead now. Hmm. But yeah, very, very difficult uh, conversation, but an important one that we should be having. How has has Christopher managed to be so... Is he just uniquely resilient? How, how has he managed? Because the sense I've got is that, is that he has a fairly sunny disposition and, and he's carrying on. It's amazing how well his life went from what I have been told after he was released, quote, quote, and, and reintegrated back into the community. He worked very very happily and as a, a faithful worker in, I believe, three different restaurants in the in the community. He retired at the age of 65, was given a retirement party, participated in sports, bowling, Special Olympics, and really lived out his life in quite a fulfilled way. I want to go back to, to your son, Ben, who urged you to do the story. 
I don't know how much you t- have told him about what Christopher had to say. Uh, how old is Ben now? Ben's 16, but I haven't, you're right, Brian, I haven't, I haven't played him that tape. So I have told him the story and he's heard some of it and, and he, he is very up to date on, on abuses that are, have gone on in the past and, and quite honestly are continuing to this day. But in a nutshell, he says, you know, we've come a long way, but there's still a long way to go in how we accept, include, and integrate people with developmental disabilities or differences. Do you think uh, Ben would like to meet Christopher? I think they would get along very well. Uh, Jeff, I want to thank you for for going to this extraordinary effort to bring us this story uh, and uh, to take the trip to Aurelia. And uh, and also thanks to Ben for suggesting that you look into it. Yes, and, and thanks again to Christopher for being so brave and sharing his story. How do you take down a criminal network hidden in the shadows? I tell them that I know that they're the ones who are running the largest child abuse website on the darknet. The journalists working to expose the darkest corners of the internet. That's your playroom floor. That's your baby's clothes. That's my house. The police who hunt down online predators. Did we create the environment that they're using? No, we didn't. We didn't make it. They made it. Hunting Warhead. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, the disturbing legacy of institutions for people with developmental and mental disabilities. The provinces may have shut them down. Still, they continue to have a subtle and pervasive influence on the people who work in healthcare today. Institutions like the Heronia Regional Center are part of the history of medicine. But some wondered just how much the attitudes that gave rise to those institutions remain and whether or not healthcare professionals have evolved. At the forefront of that effort is Dr. Jana Lunsky. You ready? Okay. What'd you have for breakfast? Toast with a piece of cheese and a little bit of butter and a cup of tea. It was okay. I, I missed out on the fruits this morning. Uh-huh. Dr. Yona Lansky directs the Azreli Adult Neurodevelopmental Center at CAMH, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. She does research on how people with developmental disabilities are treated by our healthcare system and how to improve that experience. Can I show you a photo? Sure. When I was looking through the archives here at Queen Street... She also happens um, to have a younger sister with a developmental disability. I pulled out this photo from Rideau Regional Center, and it's dated 1972. I mean, it's, a, it's like a massive gymnasium, and it look, I mean, there could be, there could be a couple hundred kids in that room. Yeah. This extraordinary photo Dr. Lensky shows us depicts a massive gymnasium-like room packed with young children with developmental disabilities of various kinds. The kids are seated in long rows of small tables. Standing over those tables are caregivers of all sorts. That room isn't from Huronia. It was part of the now-closed Rideau Centre, a residential institution outside Ottawa. The photo may be creased, but it's not all that old. It was taken in the early 70s, recent enough for me to remember. How old did those kids look to you, Brian? Five or six or seven. Yeah, and I, I sort of thought of institutions as being things for adults. And certainly in the 70s, I still thought it was really only a home for adults. And for me, my sister would have been at this time maybe a year or two younger than the children in this picture. So kind of seeing this and knowing that that's, that could be anyone's brother or sister, and it wasn't that long ago uh, that this, 
this place was just, you know, a few hours away. Wow. Is you there a place for reconciliation, restorative justice uh, for adults with developmental disabilities? Well, I think there should be. You know, I think it's we, we talk about that with other communities. I think it's really important to think about how we can do that by working with them instead of on them. <laughs> You know, by, work, by, by, by by coming together and joining with them on what matters and what's important to them and listening to them and giving them that kind of voice. Absolutely. What are the lingering effects of institutionalization that you think are still there in our healthcare system? Well, I think, for example, you know, this idea that, first of all, that these individuals may not have the same rights as other people that we know best for them what they need as opposed to trusting that with the right supports they're going to have really important ideas about what's going to benefit them you know and that really it's it's better the person gets upset if they see their family better probably just break that off altogether well says who you know the trauma of not being connected to people just because someone can't articulate necessarily how that feels doesn't mean it doesn't feel right so i think that is an an example and also that it's just less important. I think we we had values about whose whose health mattered at the time of institutions, you know, and who we should putting our our, our money into to support them for their health care. So not allowing people to have the same level of health care because of their disability. I don't think that's gone. And only seeing the disability issues and not and not delving into uh, the health needs. Of, of that right of that so person. misattributing so we have a term that we use diagnostic overshadowing just highlighting that the exact same symptoms or presentations in someone with a developmental disability we misattribute to their disability and we're talking about about garden variety stuff like heart attacks and appendicitis. it could be a medical issue and it could be a mental health issue as well right we say well that's just them that's just their disability and it's like no 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 we know what they're like this is on top of that and that should also be treated um, How difficult is it to, to, to get time and space on a curriculum that's, that's constantly being pressured for new things to, 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 to teach about this stuff? Yeah, I think if we say, well, here's another content area everyone must learn about. It is just one more population, one more content area. But I think if we say this is about diversity, this is about communication, this is about complexity, then that's very different. I think we've also learned with our teaching that just kind of teaching the content, like the percents, the numbers, the names of different things, those are things we can look up. We need to be teaching people about those other sort of softer skills and comfort and openness and awareness of what people look like, not just in the hospital, but in the community. And softer a lot of that's skill. Through. What do you mean by softer skills? Oh, just the idea of really sort of being, you know, interacting well and uh, authentically and kindly. Uh, and, and knowing what you don't know and learning from the person in front of you and the people who love that person who might be with them. So education's important. Um, what about attitudes? How do you change? Are, is there an attitude in medical culture towards people, adults with developmental disabilities, or is it just an area of neglect that they just aren't thinking about them? Yeah, I mean, the way I think about it is that even when we don't think about it, there's clearly an attitude connected to that. So if we're not thinking about it, why is that? Is that because it's not important? Is it because that's someone else's job? It's not my responsibility? Because it's just so overwhelming, I don't even want to deal with it. So by us not teaching, sometimes we talk about the hidden curriculum, it's really something we're teaching tons of things about all the time. This is something you care about on a personal basis, and we're doing this story in large part because Jeff Goodson, Ben, has empathy for adults with developmental disabilities. Is that what it takes to change things for the better? Uh, I think 
that having a personal experience maybe pushes certain people to tell their stories or connect or say this is important. But I think as a community, if we all take ownership of this because of not only people in our families, but our friends or the person who helps us at the grocery store or who greets us on the TTC, it's it's really all of us. I don't think it's just a smaller group of people that need to be doing that kind of leadership. Change that us and them into a big, giant us. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Yonalensky believes that the healthcare system can do a better job of meeting the needs of people with developmental challenges by listening to and taking advice from the people directly affected, those with disabilities and their families. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. I'm research assistant Victor Pereira. Nice to meet you, Victor. Nice to meet you too, Brian. After our interview wrapped up, Dr. Lensky insisted on introducing me to some remarkable individuals. They call themselves self-advocates. All have developmental disabilities. Their job is to educate healthcare professionals like me and to teach us that they're worthy of our time and attention. As I was about to find out, they are very good at their job. I'm learning to swim. I dance a little bit. I play basketball as well. So I'm an emergency doctor? Yes. What's one thing you think doctors like me need to learn to take better care of you? Just to understand the fact that we know how we're feeling. We don't want you to like cut us out of the conversation. Like if you respect us and you want to like talk to us, we'll show you the same respect back and we'll show you how to talk to us in a timely manner. Just make us feel welcome. And that's all we ask from you, just to include us in the conversation. Because that's what it's all about, just to break down barriers and make sure doctors and patients really understand each other so we can best find a solution. So I'll meet your needs better if I talk to you, not about you. Yes, because I know my story. Nobody else knows my story. Thank you for giving me that lesson. Okay, cool. Speaking to Victor Pereira made me realize that had Victor been born at the time of Christopher, he would have had the same experience. I'm so glad he didn't. Something about my interaction with Victor fills me with new hope that people like him can have a new and more equal and productive partnership with healthcare providers like me. It's another step in putting the legacy of Huronia in places like it far behind us. That's our show for this week. If you or someone you know has a developmental challenge and has been admitted to an institution, we'd like to hear from you. Write to us at cbc.ca slash whitecoat. Our email address is whitecoat at cbc.ca. I'm on Twitter at NightShiftMD, and the show is at CBC White Coat. We're also on Facebook. If you've missed any of our program, you can subscribe to our podcast at subscriptions.cbc.ca or wherever you get your podcasts. This week's show was produced by Jeff Goods with help from Sujata Berry, digital producer Ruby Buiza, and the rest of our digital team. Our senior producer is Donna Dingwall. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.